0: If you're uh, new with us, we are taking the Sundays in Advent and looking at uh, various psalms that are cited in the New Testament, and today we come to Psalm 31, a marvelous psalm. Let's uh, pray together before we have a look at it. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be before your word, and we pray that you would lead us to the green pastures of your word and that you would nourish us. You would come today and renew our joy. We could even say with Paul as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As we think upon your abundant goodness now, as we think about how you're with us in the midst of our anguish and trial, we pray that you encourage hearts today. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Many of you know of my love for the, the flawed but faithful servant of the Lord, Martin Luther. I had a picture of Luther just outside of my office that's recently been replaced by a piece of artwork that's being called Macaroni Tony. And if you if you haven't seen this uh, amazing pizza artwork by Evan Mancada, you should swing by uh, the office and look at how she put various kinds of pasta together to make this portrait. Uh, it belongs, I think, in the Museum of Modern Art. Um, but but one of the many things I've learned from uh, Luther uh, and, and read about is is Luther in his dying moments. And Luther uh, cited the biographers tell us a variety of passages, like Psalm 68:20, uh, John 3:16, and especially. Psalm 31, verse 5, the Psalm we're looking at today, which he apparently repeated in rapid succession before breathing his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, faithful God. And before Martin Luther, the reformer, John Huss, the Czech Reformer, also apparently died with this verse on his lips. Huss was burned at the stake for his faith. And his opponent said, I commit your spirit to the devil. And he responded, while being burned, I commit my spirit into your hands, O Lord Jesus, for you have redeemed me. Many through the years have cited this particular verse uh, from this psalm in their dying moments. The martyr Stephen, we read about it in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, right before his death, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And all of these were following the way of Jesus himself, who on the cross. Cited Psalm 31 verse 5 before he breathed his last. He had cited Psalm 22, and then he cites Psalm 31 verse 5, which you can read about in Luke chapter 23. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was doing what he had done his whole earthly life, and that is entrust himself to the Father. Now, for some Jews, uh, Psalm 31 5 was uh, referred to as an evening psalm, it was a way to commit yourself to God before a night's sleep and Jesus employs it at his last breath but he would rise in power on the third day he was born that man no more may die and we'll look at Jesus's use of that psalm at the end of this message but I want us to look at the psalm briefly in its entirety first we come to this, this psalm which is just so wonderful in, in many different ways I love the book of Psalms I think I could preach on the psalms every day um, and one of the things that's striking about the Psalms is really just how real they are. There's, there's no faking it in the Psalms. It, it, uh, it, it tells it like it is, as we say. It shows us uh, what, what an experience as a believer is like. Uh, maybe you're not a Christian and, and you wonder, what does, it mean, what does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like for a believer to deal with uh, problems and sickness and sorrow what does it look like to pour out your heart to God in prayer? And we get a window into that kind of thing here in Psalm 31. This is a psalm for the afflicted. It's the confident prayer of a distressed saint. If you find yourself in any, for any reason in a period of, of affliction, this is an encouraging psalm as it moves from anguish to assurance. As David is seeking the Lord, his anguish is transformed into assurance. In fact, if you're looking at the psalm, look down at the uh, beginning of verse 7, you see a whole string of issues that David is dealing with. In verse 7, he mentions affliction and distress. In verse 8, he mentions the enemy. In verse 9, he mentions grief. Verse 10, sorrow and failing strength. Verse 11, his adversaries. Verse 12, he feels forgotten. Verse 13, people are gossiping about him and plotting to take his life. This is a psalm for those who feel worn out from those kinds of issues. It's a a psalm that encourages us as it gives us assurance of various attributes of God, various truths about God, for example, we have the assurance that God is present with us in the midst of warfare. We have the assurance of God's strength when our strength is failing. We have the assurance of God's loyalty. We see the assurance of God's goodness in this psalm. It goes from lament to verse 19, thanksgiving. And then ends, verses 23 and 24, with exhortation as the whole psalm just sort of funnels down into those final two verses where the big takeaway is given to us, what should we do with all this information, David? What should we do after looking at your prayer and thanksgiving? Love the Lord, all you his saints. Find your strength in him. Wait for the Lord. So that's how the psalm flows. It goes from prayer to thanksgiving to those final exhortations. This seemed to have shaped the prayer life of the prophets. Jeremiah quotes uh, Psalm 31, verse 12 a handful of times. Terror is all around me. Jonah, in, uh, it cites chapter uh, uh, 31 verse 6, while in the belly of a fish. And of course, we've already mentioned it shaped, it seems, the prayer life of the Lord Jesus. So let's look at it in three parts. David's prayer, David's thanksgiving, and finally Jesus' prayer. <clears throat> this prayer is divided up into uh, about four parts. The first thing that he does is he pleads to God for rescue. We're not given the exact context of Psalm 31. It could have been a season which David was fleeing from Saul. We don't know. But it's clear that he needs God's protection and God's deliverance when he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In the past, I've taken refuge in you. And right now, I take refuge in you. And because I can take refuge in in you, I'm not hopeless. There's a safe place for me to go. Throughout the Psalms, don't we see the psalmist saying, Go to God for refuge. When uh, Michael Jordan was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he concluded his speech saying, the game of basketball has been everything to me, my refuge, my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. Without meaning to, MJ was using the language of the Psalms. But the Psalms point us in another direction, that we go to God for comfort and peace when we are dealing with the trials of this life. And David adds, let me never be put to shame for having put my trust in you. And in your righteousness, that is in your character. He's, he's, he's reminding himself of the character of God. And that gives him confidence in the midst of his anguish. So you notice how the, the prayer begins <clears throat> by David expressing his, his trust in God. If he didn't trust God, he wouldn't even pray in the first place. That's where, where prayer begins. Faith is the seed from which all prayer grows. And faith in the character of God is what's being emphasized in this psalm. What do you need in a time of trouble? What do I need in a time of trouble? We need to know who God is. We need to know that God is our refuge. We need to know that God uh, is our strength. It's the attributes of God that give assurance to the people of God. It's the attributes of God that stimulate prayer. It's the attributes of God that give rise to hope. Knowing who God is Having this faith in God, David then prays, Incline your ear to me. Kind of a picture of a person leaning in to listen. Rescue me speedily. Act quickly. Be a rock and a refuge for me. A rock was a, a refuge for a vari- in a variety of ways in Israel. Like if a flash flood came, you could get up on a high rock and be safe. The psalmist prays uh, elsewhere, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I a strong fortress to save me. And notice in verse 3, he asks for guidance. He says, for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You notice the purpose of God's guidance of us. That is for his glory. The guidance of God is for the glory of God. His prayer is not self-centered, but God-centered. For your name's sake, lead me. You lead me and you guide me. This is like Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his namesake, And so then David. Reminds us or shows us. What one of the things that he's dealing with. And that is his enemy in verse 4. They've set a trap for him. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. You are my refuge. So David is. Mentioning here the warfare that he's dealing with. And we're reminded of the spiritual warfare. That you and I deal with. David was a hunted man. And we have an enemy that wants to attack who's setting traps we have a very real enemy who hates you who hates me who hates this church who hates the work of the gospel and he will come after us in all sorts of ways and what do we do when we experience that kind of warfare we follow the way of this warrior david and we seek the lord he commits himself to the lord's care into your hand i commit my spirit You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In the midst of his warfare, David reminds us to remember the faithfulness of God. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. I give myself to you. When he says my spirit, he's referring to his whole being, his whole life. I give my life to you. And that's what we do in our anguish. That's what we do in our affliction. We remind ourselves that we are safe with God. Our lives are sacred, and we give them to God. You have redeemed me, or rescued me, O Lord, faithful God. The Lord's specialty is rescuing people. He's rescued us from our ultimate problem through the cross and resurrection, and He continues to be available, so in our times of trouble, we plead with God for rescue and protection. David moves out of that in verses 6 to 8 to express his trust in God. As he contrasts his faith with those who worship idols, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I reject their way of life. I reject their values. My heart is going to trust the Lord. And what gives him joy, even in the midst of his anguish, verse 7, is the steadfast love of God And the fact that God is aware of our anguish. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. His steadfast love, that is God's hesed, This unbreakable bond between God and his people. We need a rock to stand on in times of trial. And we go to that reality. This unbreakable bond between us and God to remind ourselves that our pain hasn't separated us from the love of God what gives him joy in the midst of this trial is the steadfast love of the Lord and the fact that God is aware of his problems he says you have seen and you know the distress of my soul we often sing in the hymn I will be with you your troubles to bless and to sanctify to you your deepest distress he is with us in the fire. He's even using the trials to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Be encouraged today, Saint, that the Lord sees, that the Lord knows. That's the kind of thing we read about in Exodus when the people were in slavery. They cried out to God. And it says in Exodus 2.24, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembered, he saw, he knew. And he then acted. He goes on to say in verse 8, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, or you have set my feet in a broad place. You've, you've put me in a secure location. You've given me room to maneuver. Jonah was in a tight place, in the belly of a fish. And apparently he had this psalm on his mind, and the Lord put him out into a broad place. One of the things I want you to see, uh, guys, it, as we look at Psalm 31, it really this goes for most of the psalms, I guess, is that in your anguish, in your trial, be spiritually active and not passive. It's so easy when we're crushed with with, uh, uh, the sorrows of this life and various things going on to actually get passive and just sort of like, I give up. (laughs) To maybe not attend church or not go to a small group or not pray. But you notice that's the opposite of what David is doing here. It's in the middle of his anguish that he's crying out to God in prayer. It's in the midst of his anguish that he's rejecting idols. And it's through his communion with God that his anguish is transformed into assurance. So be spiritually active and not passive. It's very hard to do, which is why we need one another as well to encourage us to do that. And often to come alongside of us and help us pray because sometimes all we can get out is Father. (laughs) I remember Alister beck saying that when he moved from uh, scotland he was so homesick for weeks that he would start praying and just start crying every time he would say father <laughs> you need one another we don't need to cower we don't need to retreat we need to pursue god in the midst of warfare and so that's what we learned from david here now we see the kind of warfare he's dealing with in verses 9 to 13 when he says be gracious to me O lord for i am in distress my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and body also. So this is physical, spiritual, emotional. His, his eye is wasted away from grief. You can imagine him crying, weeping, eyes wasting away. It's that kind of thing you see on a person when they're dealing with, with all sorts of things in their life that it's just taken wear and tear on their body. And David's writing a psalm in the midst of that. He says, my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, my bones waste away. Added to the warfare, added to the sorrow, now David mentions his own sin. And sometimes uh, our misdeeds contribute to our sorrow. Sometimes things get worse because of our own failures. So, learn from this psalm whether you're experiencing sorrow because of what someone else has done or because of what your own sin has done, we still go to the same place. We go to God. We go to the Lord Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, the forgiver of sinners, the healer who heals our hurts. We have a Savior who can identify with our wounds, He is our sympathetic high priest. As the poem says, the other gods were strong, but thou art weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to the throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but God alone. We have a God who knows, who hears, who can sympathize. And whether it's sorrow that we experience at the hands of another person, or the sorrow we experience because of our own failures. We don't turn from God. We go to God. And in the midst of that, that anguish is transformed into assurance. He adds to his agony by mentioning, he tells us that his agony is added by his enemies in verse 11, how he's become a horror to his neighbors, then goes on to say that he feels forgotten, that he's like a piece of pottery just thrown into the trash, and that everybody is against him. Verse uh, 13, I hear whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me and plot to take my life. He feels forsaken. He feels like everyone is against him. What do you do when you feel that way? Do what David does here. He runs into the arms of God. Notice verse 14. He expresses his trust again. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. In the middle of all of that, he can still say, I trust you, Lord. It's a great, beautiful expression of faith. And then he makes a, a wonderful statement about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God when he says, my times are in your hand. Maybe that's the verse you need today. My circumstances are in your hands. My future is in your hands. In this moment of pressure that I feel, that's in your hands, and my future is in your hands. This is sort of a Romans 8:28, which says... For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Here, David says something very similar. All the events, all the circumstances of my life are in your hands, O Lord. He recognizes that both the good and the bad, like Job, who said, blessed be the name of the Lord, they're in his hands. This firm belief in God's providence gives David hope, and it should give us hope as well. If my times are in God's hand then they're not out of hand. We can trust him. As it's been said before, providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. You got an anxious head? I have an anxious head. Stuffy head right now. <laughs> Bald head all the time. But I laid this anxious head on the providence of God. That's where rest comes. Not from NyQuil. Maybe a little bit from NyQuil. Pastor Andy Davis gives a remarkable illustration about how we have limited perspective on our circumstances, and we don't know exactly what God is doing. And he likened it to a trip where he went to uh, Islamabad and uh, visited this merchant who was making uh, rugs. And they showed him a rug from the 1930s. And the first thing the merchant did was he turned it on the uh, on the opposite side, and all you could see was all these tiny little knots of silk. And he was showing him how, how all of these were, were put together some six decades earlier or whatever. And then he turned it over and showed him the picture. And he said it was this picture of a Persian prince riding through a mountain pass on a white horse. And David says, our lives are like that Persian rug, skillfully woven in an incomprehensible pattern of pain and pleasures. Days of darkness and days of bright sunshine. The craftsman is God, and he alone has the final picture in mind. We will see it in heaven, but now it sometimes makes no sense at all. <laughs> sometimes all we see is the backside of the, of the picture. Tiny little knots. We can't figure out what in the world is going on. And God sees it all. That gives us hope. In other words, our lives are not being tossed around on, by some random sea of chance. But they're in the hands of our sovereign Father who is working out our purposes his purposes rather now what does that do for us as, as as we think about the fact that our lives are in his hand again it doesn't lead David to passivity it actually leads him to prayer you notice where he goes next rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors now for some this is a, this is a quite a, a, a knot to get worked out like if we really believe god is sovereign then why do we pray well we pray because god is sovereign <laughs> you notice david doesn't say my times are in your hand therefore I, there's nothing to do he actually asked god to change his circumstances which is very right for us to do as well it, it doesn't mean that we just just sort of let things be but but notice how active again he is rescue me and then he goes on to say make your face shine upon me save me in your steadfast love and so let that be an encouragement to you We pray to one who actually has the power to intervene and change our circumstances. The sovereignty of God shouldn't cause us to not pray, it should cause us to pray. Look who we pray to. He splits rocks in the wilderness and gives them water, He parts seas, He turns things upside down. And David prays to him. So call upon the sovereign Lord in the midst of your thanksgiving, or in the midst of your warfare. I think it's the cough medicine getting to me. Number two, Thanksgiving. I hope I've said nothing heretical at this point. Um, (laughs) David turns his attention now and praises God for his goodness. When he says, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. He's able to rejoice in the goodness of God, which is a wonderful testimony to people that in the midst of anguish and trial, you, you can still testify to the goodness of God, And he speaks of what God has done not just for him, but then in verse 20, what God has done for the faithful in general. In in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Where do we go in the midst of of warfare? We go into God's presence. We commune with him, and and we are hidden there. We are safe there. I was thinking this morning to... uh, Experience I had when I was a little kid in elementary school. Couldn't have been in third or fourth grade, maybe. And I was being bullied on the school bus by a group of high school boys. And uh, they were making me do all sorts of things on the bus, like jump over the chairs one by one and yelling at me. And and I dreaded. I mean, I can laugh at it now, but I dreaded getting on the school bus. Unless one particular high schooler who was a football player was on the bus, his name was Benny, he protected me. And he put his arm up on this... Uh, chair and on the bu- on the bus and I I would sit right there next to Benny. I was safe under the pit of Benny <laughs> Then nobody messed with me when I was and I would get on that bus for, You know who I was looking for the first thing it's Benny here And in a much greater way In all of our fears and all of our trials We're looking to God for refuge and protection And he's always there He's always there. David closes out by giving encouragement to us. What do we do with all this? He says, Love the Lord, all you His saints. How could we not love Him? The one who rescues, the one who is our deliverer, the trustworthy one, who's aware of our afflictions, who's shown us abundant goodness, who's shown us His faithful love. Love the Lord, you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians in the opening when it says, He will sustain us to the end. Be strong, Verse 24. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage, saint, as you wait for the Lord. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The cloudy so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. We wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord to intervene. We wait for his timing. We ultimately wait on his return. Now, Jesus cited this in Luke 23, verse 46. Uh, He probably had the, the entirety of the psalm on his mind. And it was a time of the ultimate anguish. And he shows us what it looks like to die with the ultimate assurance. So let's just conclude by thinking about the anguish of Jesus and the assurance of Jesus. As he prayed this prayer, Luke tells us, It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole of the land... While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So like David in Psalm 31, he was suffering from conspirators as his adversaries plotted to take his life and was there on the cross doing so. But he was also suffering more than just physical anguish. Jesus was bearing the very wrath of God against sin. He was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. He was being our atoning sacrifice. And as that was happening, a few miracles happened. The the curtain was torn, showing the uniqueness of this moment. As the old covenant was coming to an end and the new covenant was being inaugurated, and darkness was over the land, As Luke writes about it poetically, the sun's light failed. It was as if the sky was weeping. Evil is symbolized in this darkness. Sorrow is symbolized in this darkness. The judgment of God is symbolized in this darkness. And as Jesus is in this dark, dying moment, he prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's really a prayer of triumph. I give my life to you. notice that Jesus adds the word Father before Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus died in peaceful trust. He knows that there is light on the other side of the cross. He entrusts himself to the Father, knowing that the Father will vindicate him, raise him from the dead, and seat him at his right hand. And my friends, I want you to know this morning, that we may have moments in our lives in which we feel like we have been forsaken. And Jesus shows us how to trust the Father in the dark. And we will have dark days in this life. And even when we cannot see the light, we can trust our Father. As Peter says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This psalm teaches us, and Jesus has shown us, that we're not alone. One of the many things we celebrate at Christmas is Emmanuel, God, with us. He loves us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is coming back for us. And when our time of death comes, we can join with the faithful who have gone on before us and make this our prayers as well. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. May our anguish be turned into assurance today. And when we have these moments of darkness and sorrow, let us learn from David here and turn to God and not away from God in our trials. May God write his word upon our hearts this morning. Father, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper and think about the darkness that Jesus endured on the cross for sinners, we want to say thank you. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you have conquered our greatest enemy We thank you for the promise of eternal life. We thank you for your goodness. May we be assured afresh of your love. We bless you. Be honored as we take the bread and the cup now. In Jesus' good name we pray.